You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. What brought you to Jesus? Was it maybe you grew up and you just grew up knowing you were going to go to church? But was there a moment, a moment where you, you met Jesus and he became real? There was a time, maybe a, a difficulty where Jesus helped you through. Maybe there was a, a tough spot. Maybe there's just this, this beautiful miracle. Maybe it was the teaching at a class or, or at a youth conference. Where did you come to meet Jesus and follow him? When we look at the stories in the book of Mark, we see people meeting Jesus for various reasons. Some that they're, they're meeting Jesus to, to be healed. Some they're meeting Jesus to bring their friends to him. Some they're meeting Jesus to remove demons and, and the, the hard things in their life. There are many different reasons people are coming to meet Jesus, but they are coming. Right? As we've been following, there is great crowds. Often we picture Jesus as this guy, and he's, he's happy, and he's sitting underneath a tree, and there's sheep in the background, and little kids are jumping on him, and he's like, hey, kids. And, and we're like, oh, Jesus is so sweet. It was nuts. It wasn't anything like that. We're going to see, like, crowds are coming around him, and people are pushing at him. The word has got out that if you just touch his garment, if you just believe and touch him, you'll be healed. And so everyone's trying to touch, trying to get to Jesus. The crowds are coming, and imagine you've been coming along with him. As we've gone through Mark, we've gone through this journey. And so imagine that you've been one of those that that he's called to be fishers of men or to leave tax collecting, and and you've been called to be a disciple. Uh, To be a disciple is one that's learning from Jesus, one that's almost like an apprentice. You've been called to follow him, and so you've been on this journey, and you've seen him do these amazing miracles. You've seen the crowds form, and you've seen people come, and they want to be with Jesus, some of them just for a moment, just to get something out of him, and then they disappear. We never see him again. Some people are in this crowd just looking on from the outside, being judgmental. Some are questioning if Jesus is legit, and they're, they're saying this isn't real, and they're just walking away. Some are coming and believing with full force and they're healed or, or they have a loved one healed and they continue to follow and so the, they continue to be a disciple with them and this crowd grows and grows and grows. And so this idea of Jesus just sitting with a bunch of kids and some sheep is non-existent. It's Jesus like the rock star. Crowds are pushing at him. People are trying to get to him. He even has to have a backup escape plan that we're about to see here in chapter 3. Because it is so chaos. It is so crazy. What's the scene around Jesus? Because it's full of people like you and me. I hope people that can look back and think, this is the time that I met Jesus. Maybe they're picturing when he came into my village and he healed my mom, it was game time from then on. I know that he is the Messiah and I've been following him ever since. Maybe it's when he came and something he said about loving your neighbor just clicked with my wife and I. And we were, we were constantly nagging at one another, but we've been great ever since. And because of that, we have been following Jesus. Maybe it's people are saying, I, I was broken, I had a demon, I was this, I was that. Whatever it is, they've been following Jesus, they've been disciples of him. And so that's where we're picking up is this, this scene of just chaos, right? Of people that want to follow Jesus. What a beautiful scene. Wouldn't that be great? 
if we could just look out and see a, a, just chaos of people wanting to be like Jesus, wanting to draw closer to him. And so this is the scene we pick up in, in Mark chapter 3. Open your Bibles or your journals or your phone, app, whatever, we'll have it on the screen. Open it to Mark chapter 3. And we're going to see the scene of this chaotic scene of people, disciples, coming around him, wanting to be near him. Some wanting something from him, some judging him. Everyone wanting to be in the presence of Jesus, of Nazareth. Verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came from him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idioma, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. These are areas all over, right? There's people that are coming from nearby, Galilee. Maybe they just heard he's over in the village nearby. Maybe he came through their village and we just kind of got on board and got on this train. But the word has spread so much. Remember, this is pre-social media. This is pre-internet. This is pre-phone calls. This is pre-letters. This is pre-telegraphs. This is pre-anything. Word is getting out because people are just excited. They're just like, yeah, have you heard about this guy? He's changing everything. And so they tell one, and then they tell one, and then they tell one. And so the word has got to Tyre and Sidon, which is the northwest of the coast, perhaps 40 or 50 miles away from where Jesus is. They don't know that he's going to be there. Like, think about that. If I get in the car and I'm headed to Knoxville, I know that my favorite store is going to be there. I know that, my, that the restaurant that we're headed to is going to be there. They don't have a clue, but they're headed there. They're just trusting. They just want to be around him. And so they're coming from that far away. There's just some coming from Jerusalem, which is 80 miles away. They're coming from everywhere to be in the proximity of Jesus, to be a disciple of him. It's no longer this local phenomenon. He's like a rock concert. And so everywhere he goes, there's pushing and shoving. And so verse 9 continues. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. The, he tells the disciples, hey, we got to have a backup plan. It's getting nuts here. Have a boat ready. And so they would be on a hillside leading up to a lake, and he would often go in a boat, and then they would cast out, I don't know, 15, 20 feet, and then he would be able to speak to the people. That would allow the crowds not to be able to get on top of him and everyone to hear his teachings. Perhaps even these boats were used, so there's a point where he just needed to get away. He needed a break. He's 100% human as well. And this, this scene is just chaos Everyone clamoring at him. And so he has his boat ready, just in case. It says, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. We see this, we haven't talked about it yet, but this is kind of the, the Markian secret. It's this, all throughout Mark, Jesus is constantly saying, hey, yeah, you know me, don't tell anyone. I healed you, don't tell, don't share. Demons, you're calling me son of God, don't tell anybody about this. And the reason is because it's getting chaotic. The Jews were looking for a Messiah, they're looking for someone to overthrow, to free them, to overthrow the Roman government, to set them free. And this wasn't Jesus' plan. Oh, he came to set us free, 
to set them free, but to set us free of our sin. Set us free from Satan. Set us free from the penalty of death. Not to overthrow the government. And so he's making sure word doesn't get out because it's getting crazy and people are going to be demanding that he, that he starts to lead a political revival, that he starts leading people to overthrow. And so it's getting chaos at this time. The crowd is so big, word has gotten out that Jesus knows the end isn't possibly coming. He knows the end is coming. The word has got out, even though he's told people, don't tell, they're telling and so the government is starting to hear that there's someone raising an uprising. There's someone that's causing trouble. And at any moment, they could come and they could capture him and execute him. The Jewish leaders are upset because there's someone coming, giving a new teaching, giving a new way, giving a new answer for salvation. So at any moment, they could come and capture him and have him executed. Jesus knows the end is coming. The crowds have come. The word has got out. People are coming from 80 miles away, from every direction, coming to see Jesus. And so he has to initiate plan B, right? Plan A is complete for him to come and, and call the people, call the disciples, call all these people, call you and me to be followers of Jesus Christ, to try to be like him, to, to live like him. And so now plan B is for when he's gone. If he was to die this day, how's his message going to get out? If he's to die, if he's to be captured and executed, if the crowd was to overthrow him, if the government was to come and seize his boat and capture him and kill him right away, where's this message that he came to pronounce go? And so he has to come up with, not come up with, but initiate plan B, phase two, whatever you want to look at it. And this is the calling of the 12. Because through these 12, he can guarantee that the word is going to continue. Not if he dies, but when he dies. That the message and his ministry is going to go continue on, and not only in one direction, as Jesus can only be one man going from village to village, but these 12 will be able to go in every possible direction to be able to spread the word to other nations, to other areas, to other countries, to other people. That the Messiah was here, the Messiah died and rose again to be able to spread this message. And so he initiates plan B, phase two. And he calls the 12. Says, verse 13 says, Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and they might send, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appoints 12. This, this number is significant. All the Jews would have, been, would have known what this meant because there was the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? If you're not familiar with this, there, Israel had 12 tribes, 12 groups of God's people. And this was the old kingdom. This was God's plan. This was the old way. And those tribes have fallen. Ten of them have been captured and sent in exile. And, and God's plan, God's people, seems to have fallen apart. And so Jesus calls 12. He calls 12 to represent the 12 tribes to represent a completion, a renewal of this kingdom of God. And for, through these 12, things are going to change. He's going to launch a world change. 
the disciples were called to follow him. All of us were called to follow him. The, all the people, the crowd, Jesus was constantly preaching to follow me, to, to, be, to do what I do, to learn, to love like I do. But these 12 have been called beyond being a disciple. Now they've been called to be an apostle, to go and represent Jesus, to be sent out, to go and to preach, to go and have authority, to go and drive out demons. These 12 are now the apostles that have been called to go and to go out. And it gives us the list. There are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Banjuras, which means son of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, John, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All four Gospels have these 12 names. Has these guys, uh, there's a slight variation. Matthew and Mark include Thaddeus, while Luke includes, uh, calls him Judas, son of James. Most people think that he changed his name to Thaddeus because, really, after the other Judas, you really want to be, oh, are you that Judas? No, no, that's the other guy. I'll go by Thaddeus now. And so they changed his name to, to Thaddeus. And so you have these guys. Like, look at this group of men. They're vastly different. If you know the cultural background, some of them come from different ethnicities. We have Jews. We even have a Gentile. We have Matthew, the tax collector. Remember, we looked at him a couple weeks ago, the sinner that's been renewed. But he was a tax collector. He was on Rome's side. He was fighting for Rome. He was giving money to Rome. He was in Rome's pocket. And then you have Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were crazy, right? The Zealots were, were trying to overthrow the government at any time. The Zealots were always excited. Like, if you have that one crazy friend that you're like, hey, we should go do this, and they're the first one to go do it, that's Simon. He's the Zealot. He's nuts. And so you have this person that's wanting to overthrow Rome and this person that's giving money to Rome. And, they're all, and Jesus calls them all together. This is the beauty of Jesus' first church. It was different ethnicities. It was different backgrounds. It was different educations. It was different political views. All coming together for one common good. The name of Jesus. Wouldn't that be beautiful if that was our church today? If that was the, what the Christian church was today. That didn't matter what political group you were part of. It didn't matter what your skin color was. It didn't matter your standing. It didn't matter your wealth. It didn't matter any of this. Well, we all came together in the name of Jesus for one central purpose. In the world's view, these guys, these 12, were not qualified by any means. There was nothing special about them. Some of them are just uneducated fishermen. There's nothing unique about them. They're not great orators. There's, there's nothing special. They weren't leaders of their, in their own right. And yet Jesus called them. Because they had two special characteristics. Two qualifications. One, they were attracted to Jesus. They believed in him. They believed in his message. They were willing to leave everything to follow him. Willing to dedicate themselves to Jesus and his ministry and second, they had the courage to show they were on his side. Sure, we could pinpoint moments when that courage lapsed. 
But if you look at it, for the most part, man, these guys were courageous. These guys were willing to let everyone know we're with Jesus. These guys were willing to travel with him. These guys were willing to, to sleep where he slept, to eat what he ate, to be judged as he was judged. We saw that earlier. The Pharisees were criticizing them in the fields. They're criticized all the time, and they had the courage to stand up and follow Jesus. And so he calls these guys, and he calls them to two things. He calls them, one, to be with him. It says that he's up on the mountaintop, and, and he calls them to be with him. And then the other, he calls them to send them out. To be with him and then to go. To go and preach, to go and have authority, to go and have power, to go and do something in Jesus' name. And for these guys, it's a crazy life. Quickly, we'll just look at these guys. Peter was a fisherman, and we're going to look at these guys have normal traits. I want to go through so you could be like, yeah, that's me. Oh, that's a little bit of me. Oh, I catch on to that one. Peter's impulsive, right? He doesn't think before he acts, but with this person, this impulsive person, Jesus changes his name to Peter, to the rock, for on this rock I will build my church. What a great thing. Right? You get James. James was the son of Zebedee. He was short-tempered. He, he flew off the handle. He'd yell at people. He was short-tempered and he was ambitious. But he was a part of this core group of followers. He said he would drink the cup that Jesus drank. He'd be willing to die for Jesus. You guys, John, the other son of thunder, he was judgmental and loving. We see a change in John from where he was to who he is now. And this is who Jesus says, take care of my mother. He goes on to write the gospel, to write the three letters, to write the book of Revelation. We have Andrew. He was a fisherman, and he's eager to bring others to Jesus. Andrew's a great example. He's the reason that Peter is even following Jesus in the first place. He's constantly bringing others and telling them about Jesus. You have Philip, who's a fisherman too, and Philip had this questioning attitude. When Jesus says, we're going to feed the crowd, he's like, how are we going to do that? But we learn from him that through our questions, as we dig deep, it's a good thing to ask questions, to dive into the scripture, because that's how we get to know Jesus even better. That's how Philip learned more. We have Bartholomew, who was honest and straightforward. He actually rejected Jesus the first time he met him. But then he comes around, and we see that Jesus says, a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. For Bartholomew is taught the importance of honesty. Matthew, we've looked at the tax collector, the sinner, was restored. He was an outcast because of his dishonest career, and now he's been restored and redeemed to be sent out by Jesus as an apostle. Taught us that you don't have to be perfect to follow Jesus. We have Thomas, who, who doubted and had courage. He had courage to go. He says early in the script, Gospels, he's like, I'll go wherever you want, even if it's dangerous, Jesus. And then he asks, and he says, I need to see the wounds of his hands. We learn that even in the midst of our doubt, we can grow in our faith. We have the other James, who we know very little about. We really know nothing about. My guess is he was a ninja, just because I like ninjas. But we, we don't know much about James, but I'm sure he was a good guy, like all the others. Then you have Thaddeus, who has an awesome name, right? And, and when Jesus asked why he would reveal, Thaddeus asked, why would you reveal yourself to us and not to everyone? I love Thaddeus' heart. He's like, let's go tell the world about you. 
These guys are amazing. You got Simon the Zealot, who's a fierce patriot, who's highly committed to what he believes in, and he's willing to set aside those beliefs for the beliefs of Jesus. It's a huge sacrifice. And then we have Judas Iscariot, who's greedy, who betrays, who betrays Jesus, who teaches us it's not enough just to know Jesus, but you have to have a relationship with him. You have to love him. You have to want to be part of his story. So Jesus gathers these guys and he creates the first church. I don't know if you've ever looked at it that way. I hadn't until this week. He gathers these 12 guys and he creates the first church, a group of believers that are unified in one thing, not in race, not in background, not in political standings. They're unified in one thing, which is Jesus Christ. And from there, their goal is to go and change the world. This is the goal that God has given them. And that the, it says the Greek word here is translated as appointed, but it also could mean to make something. In the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, when it talks about at, when God created the heavens and the earth, it's the same word there. God didn't appoint the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. It was on this mountaintop that God, that Jesus created the church, which you and I are part of, along with the people down the street and the people across the state line at another church and the people across the world in another country are all part of what Jesus created. And he calls them to something greater than their own story. Each of these guys we, we know a little about. We, we don't know how they died. We have church legends, and, and I want to touch on those somehow and sometime. And, and we have church ideas on how they died, but it's believed that all of them were martyrs for their faith, all except for John. And John was thrown into a bat of boiling, water, boiling oil, but it didn't kill him. And so they outcast him to the island of Patmos. But for these guys, you got Peter. He was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. And he was asked to crucify it upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die the same way as his Savior. You have James, the leader of the church, was thrown 100 feet off the high point of the temple. And when the fall didn't kill him, the crowd came around and beat him with clubs. You have Andrew, who died in Greece on an X-shaped cross, and as the legend says, that for two days he suffered, and for two days he continued to preach, hoping to save the souls of those that were killing him. You have Matthew, who died of martyrdom in Ethiopia. He was killed by a sword. You have Thomas, who was stabbed with a spear in India. You have Nathaniel, who was flayed alive in Asia. These guys went out. They fulfilled what Jesus called them to on this mountaintop, is to go to be apostles. And it cost them everything. But I bet if you could ask any one of them, was it worth it? They'd all say yes. Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus first died for them. And if you ask Jesus, are they worth it? He would say yes. If, Jesus, if we asked Jesus, were you worth dying for on the cross? He'd say, yes. Were you, were you, was I? Yes. And so you have these 12 guys that are on the mountaintop and are called to be apostles. They are called to something great. 
And I see this and I wonder, what are we called to? I don't think that we're called to this life to, to say we're Christians, to show up on a Sunday morning, to, to watch, watch a service online, and, and just to go about our week the rest of the way normal. We're called to something different. I believe Jesus would call us to, to be part of this mountaintop and to say, you have a calling too. For these guys, it was to go and preach and cast out demons. For us, it, it might look very different. For us, that calling might look like just being a bold witness in your home. That if your home is divided, if there's fighting and anger, to be a bold witness and to love. Maybe you are called to be a witness at your work, to start a Bible study in the workroom, to, to set an example, to let people actually know you're a Christian. Maybe it's at school to stand up for those that are getting picked on because Jesus would have stood up for them. Maybe we're called to, to something different. Maybe it's called to action. Maybe it's called to here at Discovery to, to help out in the children's ministry or to greet or to run slides in the sound booth. Or maybe it's called outside of Discovery to do something uh, in your community, to, to be able to reach out with an organization, to be able to, to help the homeless. Maybe it's called to doing something with our finances. As you look at your bank account, does it reflect your calling? Whether that's giving to a church or giving to a children across the world. We were able to be part of Compassion's game night the other night. And it was awesome to see these kids that have been, that have been also hit with COVID-19. And to see that they're still receiving food and they're still receiving love through Compassion, through people like you that are willing to give an answer to the calling. Where have you been called? What have we been called to? truly believe each one of us has been called to something. Maybe you've been called to, to go, maybe you've been called from something. You know, Matthew was called from being a dishonest tax collector. Maybe we're called from a toxic relationship, a relationship that's unholy and ungodly. Maybe we've been called from an addiction. Maybe we've been called from a habit. Maybe we've been called from a lifestyle. We need to be, follow what we're called to. Maybe we've just been called to love on your spouse and your kids in Jesus' name. To turn to him for that strength. Maybe you've been called to forgive. One of the hardest things we can do. We've been all called to something. So I wonder, do you know your calling? For these 12 guys, I'm not sure they did. <laughs> I'm not sure they knew what it would look like. But Jesus was trying to paint it out for them. And if you don't know your calling, I want to encourage you to come and see us. Let's help you find that calling because there's a point where each one of us is called to be part of Jesus' story. These 12 guys on the screen, they are called each by name by Jesus. But so are all these people. We try to get the name of everyone we could think of at the church. And if we missed your name, it was because we ran out of space on the screen. Because we had 900 of them to pull from. You have been called up on the mountaintop. You've been called to not just follow, not just to be a disciple, which is a great thing, which is to be like Jesus. But you've been called to go out and be part of Jesus' story You've been called to something different. 
You've been called to be part of this thing that Jesus creates as the church. You've been called to make an impact. Your name is on that list, just like Nathaniel and Thaddeus and, and Andrew and Peter and James and John and the other James, and the list continues. Your name has been called. Are you following that calling? Are you following the calling to what Jesus has called you to? Christianity began with a group. Christian faith is, is something that Jesus started as these guys came together. We've been called not to do this Christian walk by ourselves. So often we, we get narrow-minded and we think that we can do this and, and we think that the, our faith is just between us and God. It's not. It's a community. We're called to do this together. These 12 were called to be part of something bigger together. And so if you're not in a community, I want to encourage you to connect with people, whether that's connecting through service, maybe helping out somewhere, maybe that's connecting at your work, maybe that's connecting in a small group. We got many great small groups. We, maybe it's connecting. If you're a lady, we got a, a, a series on forgiveness coming up. Uh, I've mentioned it before. You'll hear a lot more about it next week. That's going to change your life, I think. And we're hoping to get as many women as part of this as possible to be part of a community. We've been called to be part of a church. And maybe this doesn't apply to you, but I'm pretty sure it has. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe more of this applies to those watching at home, questioning, I don't even, can't even go in the, in the building. I'll be honest, I've been hurt by the church. I think we all have in some way. But the reality is, Jesus calls these 12 to be the first church, and in that list is Judas. Judas wasn't a good guy. Judas made mistakes. Judas hurt others. But is Judas a representation of the entire church there at that moment on the hillside? No. If you've been hurt by the church, don't let that one hurt be a representation of God's bride. Let us come together and answer his calling. Because we've all been called to something great. So the two questions I leave you with. Do you know your place in Jesus' story? He's called you by name up on this mountaintop. Do you know your place? And are you living it out? Feel prayer with me. God, we just thank you for the opportunity to be called by name to you. God, that we've been called to, to follow you, that we've been called to, to be apostles, to go out. God, whatever that might look like, whether that's in our home, at our work, at our school, whether that's in our neighborhood, whether that's wherever that might be, God, we've been called by you to be part of your story, something so much bigger than our own. God, let us follow that calling. God, you called these 12 by name. I truly believe you've called us each by name. Let us answer that calling. Let us find our place in your story and help us live it out. In your name, amen.